So the title of our series is? Is, there you go, you gotta be quick like that. Back to the future, and we're talking about the importance of praying God into our past. Now, this is called, um, it's called inner healing. And if you ever have gone through any kind of tragedy in life or hurt in life, um, psychiatrists are great, you know, um, counselors are great, but inner healing is when you literally take the time uh, to pray God into something that happened in the yesterday and ask him to heal and mend. And for instance, if you got hurt by somebody when you were 20 years old, you need to take the time and pray, Lord, take, go back to when I was 20 years old. Go back to that time in my life. And I want you to begin immediately healing my heart from that hurt. Help keep the unforgiveness and bitterness out of my heart. Lord, I want you to take care of that person that hurt me. I want you to bring them, draw them to you. I want you, whatever happened in their life that caused them to hurt me, heal them. And you spend time praying that event. And immediately your heart in this present time begins to change. And so your future is so much better because you don't realize the things you hold on to from the past they have affected who you are today, the decisions you make, the things you do in life. And so it's very, God doesn't operate in time like we do. He can go back just like that to a time in your life and heal and mend and deal with those situations. And so that's my goal for you in this series is to learn how to do that, whether it's something you did to somebody, something that was done to you, a, a huge disappointment in life that, that caused you to be you know, depressed or bitter or whatever it is. We can't let those things stay inside of our heart because everything out of our heart uh, is our life. Okay, so today in part three, I want to talk to you about repentance, repentance. And, and I told you uh, at the beginning of the series that really the series is for me. You know, it's not really for y'all. It's really for me. And when I study for myself, I get a lot of the Greek and Hebrew in there because I'm very hard headed and I need to prove to myself uh, uh, with me on a shadow of a doubt that what this says is what God says and so forth. So don't get bored by the Greek stuff. In the next series, I'll, I'll, I'll bring out the Spanish, okay? So, um, so the Greek word for, for repentance, um, people think it means, they think it means uh, to change your life or to change your heart or to turn away from sin. Or they think it means to stop doing bad things. Well, if you repented, you shouldn't be doing bad things anymore. Here's the thing about it. You can't change your heart. You can't. So there's no way Jesus would ever tell you to repent if that meant change your heart. Only God can change your heart. And, and if we could change our own heart, we wouldn't need him. But the reason we're here today is because we want him to change our heart. And, and when your heart's changed, your whole life is changed. Okay. So the, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia or metanoia. Okay. The noun would be um, metanoia and it means to change your mind or metanoia is the verb to change the way you think. It has nothing to do with your heart. Now, um, changing your heart, God changing your heart, and your life changing is a result from you changing your mind and changing the way you think. But that is what repentance is. Repentance is not changing your heart. Jesus preached this, and John the Baptist preached this. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't say, repent or you're going to hell. It was always good news. He said, if you'll change the way you think, I'll change your heart and you'll be in heaven. If you will change the way you think. So let me explain this to you before we get our three points. Change the way you think. Um, a lot of us think that our way is better than his way. A lot of us think that if we're good, we go to heaven, or if we're bad, we go to hell. And Jesus came to change all of that. He said, y'all been thinking about your relationship with God wrong for years, and I'm here to tell you, change the way you think. God loves you. God has a good plan for your life. If, you, if No good things get you to heaven. No bad things get you to hell. I'm here to tell you it's by grace. If you have a relationship with me, you'll be in heaven for all of eternity. So change the way you think. 
I'm going to read you a scripture and give you an example that will really, really help you with this. And then we'll get into our three points. Romans 2, 4 says this. Are you ignorant? And the message translation says, are you stupid? Are you ignorant of the fact that God's goodness, not his wrath, not his ability to squash you with his finger, but his goodness is intended to lead you to change the way you think. Because some of y'all, the way you think about money, you think is best. No, no, no. The way God thinks about money is best. Change the way you think. The way you think about sex or, or being moral or immoral, you think that your ways, you know, God's trying to keep you from being happy and trying to take something from you. No, no. Think God's ways. Change your mind. God's way is best. Your life may not change right away, but it starts with you changing the way you think. And he says this, but you refuse to change your mind. You really think your way is better. You really think that what you want for your life is better than what I want for your life. You have a hardened, stubborn heart. I can't do anything with your heart because you won't repent. So let me give you an example. I have several friends that are in AA and NA. NA is on Narcotics Anonymous, A is Alcoholics Anonymous. The reason that they go to those meetings every night is because they've repented. Their mind has told them, you know what? Drugs is not part of my destiny. I don't want to get drunk every night. I don't want that in my life. Now, here's the thing. They may lapse. They may fall. And the righteous man falls, the Bible says, but he always gets back up. They may fall once a month, once a week, once a year, once every 10 years. I don't care how much they fall. If they're still going to meetings, their mind has said, I don't want to fall. I realize this is wrong. This is not the best way. I want God to change my heart. That's true repentance. Even if they fall, that's true repentance. But then you have people, and whether it's homosexuality, heterosexuality, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, they have this thought. Well, this is who I am. And I'm just going to live this way. And you know what? I can just do what I want. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm okay this way. They're not taking any steps towards repentance. In their mind, they've just become accustomed with this lifestyle. And that is called living in sin. And there's no repentance there. You're either unsaved or you're an incredibly rebellious, prideful Christian. One or the other. But when you refuse to think the way God thinks, there's no repentance. Now, if you'll get in your mind, you know what? This life, this isn't, this isn't right. This is God, for whatever reason, God says this isn't right. So God, I need you to heal me. I, I, I don't want to be like this. That's repentance. And then God can come in and he'll either change your heart immediately. It'll take time. He might let you stay a certain way your whole life. So you have to rely on him every single day. But repentance is, I don't want to live this way, if, if you're if the way God sees money and you see money, if you see money different than him, listen, if you're whatever you think is a sin and your mind needs to say, you know what? I may not tithe right now, but I want to. I may not um, spend money wisely, but I want to. I may not work hard, but I want to. Here's why I want to, because God says this is best. So I want my mind to think the way God does. We should repent every single day. Every day we should spend time uh, renewing our mind in the word so that we think the way God thinks. That is true repentance. Are we all good so far? Yeah. Nobody's walked out, so I think we're doing okay because we, we bolted the lock. So you can't leave anyway. I'm just kidding. Okay, so you're, you say, well, what area do I need to change? What does repentance mean? Just change the way you think about what? There are three main words I'm going to give you today. I'll start with the letter S that involve the true Greek word metanoia for repentance. Change the way you think about these three things, okay? Point number one for your notes is this, sin. Change the way you think about sin. Ephesians 1, 7, Christ sacrifices life and blood to set us free, meaning our sins are now forgiven. Uh, sacrifices blood, meaning our sins are no, Here's what we do. We categorize our sins. If, if we commit a small sin, 
we're, we're good. We ask forgiveness. We're like, okay, no big deal. We're, we're good. We, we walk away. If it's a medium sin, like we cuss somebody out or um, we have a lustful thought or we feel like we want to murder our boss, we think, you know what, that's not good. And so we feel guilty about it for maybe a few hours. But when we commit a horrible sin in our mind, a horrible sin like adultery, uh, have an abortion, um, we, we give in to drugs, we get drunk and do you know mean things, whatever. So we'll hold on to those sins. Sometimes for years, people hold on to those things. But I'm here to tell you the way God sees sin is sin is sin. Jesus died for all of it. The little, the medium, the big. So don't let that keep you down because when you repent, you're forgiven. Let it go. And I want to give you an incredible biblical um, example of this that changed my life when I was a kid. I saw this. Okay. So if I'm holding my Bible like this, it's opened up to the gospel of Matthew. You see the red letters. I'm sure those of you who have great eyes can see that. Okay. So that means on this side of the Bible is on the left side of y'all is the Old Testament. Right? Which means on the right side is the... Y'all are so smart! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Okay, so Old Testament, New Testament. Okay, let's look at the Old Testament. Let's look at one of our heroes of faith. Like, let's say Noah, okay? Genesis 9.21, Noah became drunk from wine and lay naked in his tent. Now, if there was social media at this time, y'all probably would have not gone to Noah's church, right? Wherever he pastor. But anyway, that's Noah. Let me show you what the New Testament, let me show you what the blood of Jesus says about him. Hebrews eleven seven. Noah obeyed God. He built a boat and received the righteousness that comes by faith. Amen. It's going to get worse, right? Old Testament, Genesis 16, 4. Abraham had sexual relations with Hagar, who was not his wife, by the way, and she became pregnant. And he wanted a child, and God said it's going to happen through your wife, Sarah. And he got ahead of God. He didn't trust God. And he just slept with his maid, right? Okay, let's see what the blood of Jesus says about him. Hebrews 11, 11. Abraham trusted God to keep his promise. No, he didn't. I literally just read to you, he did not trust God to keep his promise. He did the opposite of trusting God to keep his promise. He got ahead of God and did what he wanted to do and did a horrible sin, had a child out of wedlock. He was a horrible father of that child, sent him off in the desert, and God says that he trusted God and he kept his promise. How can God say that? Because the blood of Jesus is that powerful in our life. It's going to get worse. Exodus 2.12, Moses beat the Egyptian to death and hid the body in the sand. Boy, I don't know if anyone's ever done a background check on these pastors and these men that God's using in a great way. God sure knows how to pick them, doesn't he? And so let me show you what the New Testament says. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. By faith, Moses saw God and held on to his purpose. We don't hear anything about him killing somebody on this side of the cross. Well, if I was to read your Old Testament life, <laughs> most of y'all put it on Facebook. We all know what you've been doing. <laughs> anyway, okay. Old Testament, Judges 16, 1. Samson saw a prostitute and had sex with her. Man, you know, it's so funny. My phone and my laptop at home, they have so many um, blocks, so many things, protective wear on there, so I can't ever see or anything bad. There's, I was looking up scriptures like this. I couldn't even look up in the Bible on my phone. Or my, I had to use my wife's phone to look up scriptures on the, in, out of the Bible. Okay, here's the New Testament, Hebrews 11.33. Samson administered justice, obtained promised blessings, and closed the mouth of lions. Do you see how God sees you on this side of the cross? On this side of the cross. Okay, Genesis 19.36. Both the daughters of Lot had a child with their father. This man committed incest. He, he was a horrible, strife-filled man. He stole land from people. Mean, mean guy. What in the world would God say about this man? 2 Peter 2.7. Lot lived right and was a good man. I mean, drop the Bible, right? 
can you, I mean, like, what, what, what is, what, you know, when God sees you, he only sees the good. If you're in a relationship with Jesus, because Jesus took away all the bad. Okay, one more, 2 Samuel 11. This is the whole chapter, ready? David saw a woman bathing. There's pornography. He lay with her. There's adultery. She became pregnant. There's a child out of wedlock. So King David sent her husband to the front line of the fighting so he would die. Uriah died. There's murder. What a great man of God. Does anybody want to go to his church? <laughs> so where'd you go to college? No one's also, but you know, I did murder, commit adultery, and everyone knows, oh, you know. Okay, Acts 13, 22. I found David to be a man after my own heart. He does, okay, this blows my mind. He does everything I want him to do. Everything I want him to do. Can, do you know that when God wrote David's destiny, he knew he was going to do all this? It didn't shock God. God, God doesn't define us by our mistakes. He refines us by our mistakes. He uses those things to grow us, to, to, to get us to our destiny. Some of the greatest lessons we learned were with our failures, after repentance, after we change. In fact, some of the sin is what causes us to change the way we think and realize my way is not best. My way is not best. Um, it's, it's so interesting. I, I read about this um, baseball player back in the 80s. And I used to be in the baseball, collect the cards, and I went and saw Boston Red Sox game. It was the only major league game I saw. It was in the 80s, and there was a player named Bill Buckner. And Bill Buckner had more hits than Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. In fact, at one point in, in Bill Buckner's uh, career, he had the highest batting average of any baseball player in all of Major League Baseball. He was an incredible leader. Um, all of his teammates said he was great at the clubhouse. He always inspired them, encouraged them. Everyone loved Bill Buckner until the 1986 World Series. In that World Series, in one of the games, um, there was a slow rolling ground ball coming his way, and it went right between his legs, and he missed it. The time it took to turn around and get that ball, uh, the other team scored a point, which tied the game, and the other team ended up winning the World Series that year. It got the fans, they despised and hated Bill Buckner from that day forward. He was known as the man who, um, who, the player who missed the ground ball. That's what he was known as everywhere. So 33 years goes by, right? 1986 World Series, 33 years later, which is just a few years ago, Bill Buckner died. Despite his illustrious career, his phenomenal batting average, all of his hits and runs, the one thing everybody remembered was his failure. The newspaper article when he died read this, Bill Buckner, the man who became known for making the most infamous play in baseball. Do you know you can do a thousand things right? You can serve, give, sacrifice, worship, all these great things, but the world and Satan will always remember and remind you of your failures more than your victories. That's why you have to tell yourself, no matter what I've done, big, small, little, medium, huge, it's all covered by the blood. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, if God is faithful and just to continuously forgive our sins, when we stop confessing it as sin, we stop considering it as sin. When we stop considering it as sin, it becomes a normal part of our life and we end up living in sin. Every area of your life, you are living in sin, in total rebellion with the mindset, well, God will still bless me in this area. You're absolutely crazy. You need to change the way you think. Yeah. Repentance is this. Even if I keep falling, I know what God says is truth, and I'm asking him to change my heart on a regular basis. And the minute you confess, it's over and it's done. Move forward in life. Okay, sin. Number two is this. Shame. 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 Um, one, first John 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and shame. So shame 
is when your sin is exposed. Um, it's when somebody finds out. It's uh, when someone's angry with you at what you did. In other words, if, if, if your sins, if no one knew about them ever, you wouldn't feel shame. You feel shame when someone finds out, okay? I'm going to teach you a word a little bit. The word is atonement. But atonement is when your sin is covered, when it's covered up. Shame exposes, atonement covers. Are you with me? And, and we as Christians, we know that God sees everything we do, even the inside, the heart, the motives, the thoughts. God knows all of it. What we do behind closed doors, God sees all of it, okay? So it's easy for us to feel shame. But I want to show you how Jesus not only took our sin, but he also took our shame, okay? The first thing to happen when Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 3, 7 says this, the moment they ate the fruit, Adam and Eve suddenly felt shame. So here's the first thing they did when they felt shame. They sewed fig leaves together and they tried to cover themselves and hide from God. In other words, they tried to atone for themselves. They tried to cover. Here's the key though. Only God can cover sin. Only through a relationship with Jesus can your sin be covered. Instead of exposed, covered. So let me show you what God did in Genesis 3.21. For Adam and his wife, God made animal coats of skin and God covered them. And just as a foreshadowing of Jesus, blood had to be shed. Yeah. I want you to see a sacrifice had to be made for God killed the animal. He, that's where the sacrifice started to cover up our sin. Um, before I really explain it to you, let me tell you a story. The, the worst mistake I ever made as a parent, I mean the worst. Like I have mistakes that are like this. The one mistake that was this high as a parent, it still eats me up to this day. I've asked my son to forgive me over two dozen times, um, but one time I shamed him. I corrected him in front of his friends, a girl that he liked, and uh, several adults that were also in the room, and it destroyed him. I mean, it destroyed him. Never correct your children in front of anybody. And I teach our youth leaders this. I teach our, our children's either. Don't ever correct. If you need to correct the child or even adult, you bring them to the side where no one's around. And if you want change, if you want them to hate you and you want them to be more rebellious and you want them to do that thing again that you said don't do, just correct them in front of somebody. In their mind, all they're thinking is this. I hate you right now. How could you embarrass me in front of these people? I don't care how little your child is. Don't correct your two-year-old in front of an adult. If you'll notice, when you correct your children, the first thing they do is look at the other person that's in the room to see if they see what it is you're doing and what you're saying. When I did that to my son, in that split second, I can't, I can't even tell you spiritually and emotionally what it did. It, it completely disconnected us. It took me over a year to win his heart back after that. And I tried very hard to win his heart back. It took a year of a lot of effort on my part to get his heart back. Here's why I shamed him. I shame, shame doesn't change anybody. Shame doesn't make anybody want to obey or grow or do what you're asking them to do. Never shame. Never. That's the, there's nothing more evil and satanic because Satan wants to expose you to the world so you feel shame and you never serve God. That's his goal. The first thing Adam and Eve did, they felt ashamed and they wanted to cover it up so nobody could see. And God said, listen, it's okay. I can, I'm going to send an atoner. I'm going to send Jesus to cover all of your sin so you never have to feel this way again. The word I want to teach you, atonement, it means this. The best way to see it is at one with God. Because you see the A-T-O-N-E. So it'll always help you remember. It means more than this, but the gist of it is at one with Not just conversing with God, but with God for all of eternity. So how can 
Um, how can sinners like you and me, how can people who make mistakes, how can un- imperfect people be with, 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 with a perfect God? And the answer is atonement. So let me teach you about atonement. It is in the Bible 102 times. And the first time we see the word atonement um, translated from Hebrew to English, it's actually the word cover. The first time in the Bible, all the other 101 times is either atonement or propitiation, which I'll show you in a second. He, uh, Genesis 6, 14, talking about the ark in Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make it, make in it rooms and cover or atone it inside and out. In other words, here's the foreshadowing of Jesus. I'm going to cover everything you do on the outside, but I'm also going to cover and take care of everything that you do on the inside. Your thoughts, your motives, your iniquities. And this is great news for you and me because every one of you in this room, you look really good on the outside, but on the inside, you stink. You're bad, and I know you're bad, and I know you stink because I know this. I stink on the inside, and I'm the pastor. So if I stink as bad as I do on the inside, the thoughts that I have, the selfish motives that I have, the prideful thoughts that come to my mind, if I am the way I am, I know y'all are bad. So y'all need atonement in your life. Um, I've read about this, this eagle that was, um, that was swooping down to, to grab a mole off the ground, which was very unusual because eagles only eat fish. They eat fresh fish. And this one eagle, this guy saw him out there and he swooped down and he grabbed a mole and he held the mole real close to his chest and he was on his way to take him to his nest or wherever he was going to eat the mole at. And as he, as, he, as he started climbing in the air, you could tell that something happened to the eagle and it kind of lost its, its breath for a minute. It felt this pain on the inside. And as it was trying to climb up, it started getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And the eagle ended up crashing down to the ground and the little mole scurried away and the eagle just fell over and died. And the guy that saw this take place, he didn't know that the eagle was, you know, completely dead. He maybe, you know, he was in a coma or whatever. So he grabs the eagle and he takes him to a local vet. And the, the eagle, of course, did die. But the veterinarian discovered that the mole must have bit the eagle right there at the heart, punctured its heart. The eagle immediately started losing blood pressure and was getting weak and, and couldn't fly. But the eagle refused to let go of the mole because it wanted to eat the mole so bad. And the mole ended up killing it. My question to you is, are you holding on to something that you don't realize is killing you? Shame, guilt, how much higher could you soar? How much more could you do for Jesus in the kingdom of God if you would leave that mole, that sin, under the blood where it belongs, where it should stay? Don't ever let anybody expose what God has covered in your life. Don't even let the enemy remind you or try to expose, even in your mind, the things you've done that the blood of Christ has covered up. Imagine those men of faith we talked about earlier. If every day they were reminded, well, you know you got drunk and naked. Well, you know you slept with your maid. Every day, if that thought came, they'd never accomplish what God had them to accomplish. Um, there was this one, this one weirdo that was coming to church like two or three years ago. And um, I don't pastor weirdos. I'll pastor anybody. I'll pastor anybody but a weirdo. And I just can't. I don't have the, I don't have the emotional energy. And this guy was so weird. He's like passing out pamphlets and he always had a word for me and just, just weird stuff. And so um, before he joined the church, he said, um, I demand a meeting with the pastor. I demand it. And usually I don't give in to stuff like that, but I really feel like fighting that day. So I said, okay, I love a good fight. And so I said, okay, I'll meet you at the church. So we met here in my office and um, he said, I'm thinking about joining your church, but I'm not going to join your church until you tell me the details of that horrible sin you committed you know, several years ago. He said, I want to know the details of the whole thing, and then I'll join your church. And I had some thoughts. My first thought was, um, John Paul, you're a pastor, so 
don't punch him in the face. That would be very, very bad. <laughs> then my second thought was, you know, John Paul, you're a pastor. If you punch him in the face, God will forgive you. That was my second thought. <laughs> and I stood up because I was going to punch him. I stood up and I just, I just stopped. And um, I knew I could take him. And, um, but anyway, I stopped and I said this. I said, you know what? It's funny you said that. I said, because I have a, a policy here. I said, you know what? I will never be your pastor until you tell me the greatest sin you ever committed in detail. I want to know every detail of it. He looked at me like, I, he said, I'm not going to tell you that. I said, we're on the same page. Get out. <laughs> Don't ever let the enemy expose what God has already covered in your life. It'll drain the life out of you and you'll never soar to what you were supposed to be. Okay, so y'all are clapping now, but I'm about to give you a boring history lesson. So stay with me, okay? In, um, in 250 BC, there was a, a, a Roman general named um, Ptolemy II. Okay, Ptolemy II. I'm going to ask you a history question, and you better get it right. I'll be so upset, okay? Who was Ptolemy II's father? Who was it? Ptolemy I. Good job! Woo! Yes! Y'all went to college. I know y'all went to college. Okay, so Ptolemy So Alexander the Great, he dies at the age of 32, greatest leader at the time of the whole known world. And his king, his empire got split up into two, Ptolemy and Seleucus. And I'm sure you've heard of the Seleucus Empire, or the Ptolemy Empire, or the Seleucus period, or whatever. So Ptolemy had a son, Ptolemy II. Ptolemy II takes over after Alexander the Great, Ptolemy, and Ptolemy II. 250 BC, Ptolemy II, he's reigning, and he has this thought that comes to him. It's a really great thought. Even though he doesn't believe in God and all that, but he has this thought. You know, the most moral people on planet Earth are the Jews who have the Hebrew Scriptures available to them, the Old Testament Bible. And so Ptolemy thought, you know what, I want to reign and I want to reign a long time. I want it to be well for me. And so if I could just get those Hebrew scriptures transcribed into Greek and give it to my people, maybe we'd have less strife, less fighting, less immorality, and my reign would be much healthier and much better. It was a great thought. And in fact, I wish that our leaders in this country today would realize the exact same thing. That when people have the Bible available to them, kids, teenagers in school, how much it would help. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Anyway, and so as a side note, King James, who you have the King James Bible, he actually had the same thought. The reason that we have the Bible in English, it went from you know, Greek to Latin to English, is because King James thought, you know what, I want to get it in, in the language of my people so they can all be more moral. Um, King James also had a little bit of pride in him because um, the, the name James is not in the Bible, by the way. It's not in the New Testament Bible at all. And I know you're thinking, well, about the book of James, there's no Hebrew name James. The Hebrew name is Jacob. And in 1600s, when King James had it transcribed to English, he wanted his name in the Bible, so he took out all the Jacobs in the New Testament and put James in there. Really good history lesson, but it's still cool because we still have the Bible in English, and you can say James. We don't mind at all. Anyway, okay. And Jimmy is definitely not in the Bible. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's Jacoby. No, I don't know. Anyway, so Ptolemy II, right? He's, he's reigning, and he wants the, he wants the Bible in, in Greek. And so he hires 70 um, Hebrew scholars. Seven, actually, he hires 72 of them. And he hires six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He puts them all in different rooms and he doesn't tell them there's anyone else involved. He lets them think they're the only scholar that he's hired. And the 72 actually came down to 70. History doesn't tell us why. Maybe two died during this time or two quit for whatever reason. It went from 72 to 70. And he said to them, I want you to transcribe the Hebrew Bible, which is the Old Testament at the time, no New Testament because it's 250 BC, into Greek so my people can have it in our language. Um, when it got done and the 70 were finished, um, and they all got done and they all were looked at their, and they realized there's other people involved. 
Um, history tells us, and, and, and what we know is, is that every single one of the 70 scholars, everything they transcribed was all 100% exactly the same with zero variation. Zero variation, which is amazing, which is amazing, okay? And in fact, the 70 that did this are called, for your notes, which I know you don't care, they're called the Septuagint. And for those of you that love football, the Septuagint is LXX 70. Sept is the seven, and Gen is the transcription, and our transcribing of it. And September is actually the seventh month. March was the first month, but then the Roman calendar changed that. But anyway, Sept is 70. So anytime in your Bible you're studying and it says, according to the LXX, it's referring to these 70 scholars that transcribed the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, and then Greek to Latin, and now we have English. Okay, you with me? The re okay, good. So the reason I'm telling you this is, even though every single one of them, everything they wrote, it came exactly alike, word for word. However, there was no Greek word for the word atonement. No Greek word. So these scholars had to come up with the word to go from Hebrew to Greek because there was no Greek word for atonement. And the word they picked is amazing, and you see it in your Bible, and I'll tell you why it's amazing. The word they picked is propitiation. The reason they pick propitiation is propitiation, it doesn't just mean cover and remove sin, doesn't just mean cover and remove shame, it also means cover and remove God's wrath. That's important to us because we think when we do something wrong, he's angry and mad, and that's where our shame comes from, okay? Liberal theologians in America today are trying to take the word propitiation out of the Bible because they don't ever want to talk about God being angry. But I need you to know that God has a righteous anger and he does get mad. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. If, if someone were um, abusing children to death, would you be angry at that person? Yeah. Yes. In fact, the Bible commands you to be angry. It says be angry, but don't sin. Don't kill them. You don't gossip about them, but be angry and take care of it. Right. We're supposed to be angry. OK, here's why this is really important to me, because if you don't realize that God was incredibly mad at your sin, you can't rejoice knowing he's no longer mad anymore. You have to know he was incredibly mad. Romans 3.25, God sent Christ as a propitiation by his blood, the sacrifice of atonement to show that he has let former sins go unpunished. God was angry at your sins, so he sent Jesus to atone for your punishment so you could be at one with God. That's really good news. He can never be mad at you again. Now, I'm going to show you that in the scripture, but first... Tell me what the symbol is to um, the promise from God that he'll never flood the earth. What is that symbol? And I started with the, remember the Noah's Ark with the inside and out covering of atonement. Remember that? Uh, and the rainbow does not mean pride and it does not mean anything else connected to that. It means that God will never flood the earth. But there's actually a second biblical promise that a lot of Christians don't know about in the Bible concerning the rainbow. And I'm going to show it to you. Isaiah 54, 8, in wrath. I hid my face from you for a moment because God's perfect and we're not. But with everlasting or never ending love, I'll have mercy on you. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So have I sworn that I will never be angry with you again. God can never be angry at you again because Jesus took all that wrath upon himself. He took the punishment, the shame, the sin, the anger of God all upon himself. So every time you see a rainbow, I want you to think this. God can never be angry with me again. That's good news. Okay, point number three. Last point. I only spend three minutes on this. And that is serving. Repentance means change the way you think about serving God. Because people, when Jesus came and he was preaching this, they thought, well, I can only serve God if I'm perfect. 
And they looked at the Pharisees who did a bunch of good things on the outside, but on the inside they were nasty. And they're serving God. So everybody thought, well, I guess I got to be like them to serve God. No, you serve God in spite of your sin. You serve God in spite of whatever you're battling. You just serve God. Romans 12, 11, never give up. The reason it says that is because when we sin, we feel like giving up. Yeah. Even if it's just for a few days, maybe a few weeks, you know, we've committed this horrible sin. So when I go to church, I can't really worship today because I got to feel bad for what I did. Never give up. Be on fire with the spirit and serve the Lord. So let me show you a scripture. I think you're going to love this story. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus told Peter, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Surely when Jesus gave Peter this destiny, surely Jesus had no idea that Peter was going to make any mistakes. I'm sure when Jesus told him this, Jesus thought in his mind, you know, Peter's perfect. He won't ever do anything wrong. He'll never cuss. He'll never deny me. He'll always be my friend. So I'm going to let my church be built upon this man. I'm sure that's what Jesus thought, right? When Jesus, when Jesus wrote your destiny, because the Bible says he knows everything you would do. Uh, David said that before you did it. He had everything written down. Surely God had no idea when he planned your destiny that you were going to make any mistakes, right? Okay, Matthew 26, 34. Jesus said to Peter, I assure you tonight before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter kept insisting, even if I have to Die with you, Jesus. I will never deny you. Can you see Peter? He, always, he was always so arrogant, always wanted to be first. He always cussed when he got upset. But I'll never deny Jesus. And sure enough, they take Jesus into, into um, they, they take him in custody and they're, they're beating him. They're spitting upon him. Um, blood's running down his face. And all of a sudden, somebody sees Peter across the courtyard and said, you know him, right? And Peter says, no, 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 I don't know him. They said, no, no, I've seen, you with, I've seen you with him. You're one of his No, I've not, I don't know him. They said, no, I, I know you're one of his disciples. And the Bible says that Peter cussed and cussed and cussed and said, I don't know him. He's not my friend. I have nothing to do with him. And as soon as Peter said that, the Bible says that the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter met across the field. Verse 75, just then the Lord turned around and looked straight at Peter. And Peter went out and cried and cried and cried and cried. And in my opinion, this is probably the biggest mistake ever made in human history other than Adam and Eve, I would say. Because there's never been a time when Jesus needed a friend the most than in that moment. The one time our Lord and Savior needed just somebody to say, I love you, I'm with you, I believe in you, I'm your friend. It was in this moment, and Peter had the opportunity. He said, I don't blankety-blank know him. So 50 days goes by. Pentecost, right? 50 days Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, this is the birth of the church. This is the, the first day of the vision of the vision that Jesus uh, sent out for the world. And this vision, the church is supposed to last um, in, in, until past earth. Earth will, will burn up, but there will always be the church. This is the, in fact, this is the, if you want to be part of something that will last forever, this is the one corporation or business or, or group or people or whatever you want to call it in the world, the Bible says, that will last for all of eternity is the church. Because not even the gates of hell can prevail against it, right? So 50 days, it, it's Pentecost. And they said, all the disciples, they said, you know what? We need somebody to give the big inaugural address. We need someone to stand up and just, and really just, Promote the church. It's the first time ever. And this is the day. And, and, and this is the plan that God had for mankind. And, and, and we have to. It's the day of the church. Who's going to give the big speech? And somebody says, well, Matthew, you should do it. You know, you're really detailed. You know, we, they'd love to hear some detail. 
Someone else says, well, John, you should do it. You know, um, you're, you're, you're the, Jesus' favorite disciple. We know because you've told us 12 times. You know, you're, you're his favorite. <laughs> you know, if you read the Gospel of John, he's the one that writes Jesus' favorite disciple. He's the one writing it, you know. Anyway, and so all of a sudden someone says, no, 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 no. It, it, should, be, it should be Peter. Oh, yeah, that's right. Of course it should be Peter. Because you're the one that Jesus said upon this rock, I'll build my church. Peter, you got to do it. Peter hangs his head in shame. Guys, I don't know if I told you all this, but just 50 days ago, I made the biggest mistake of my life. Just 50 days ago, I did something that I, I thought I'd never do. I even swore I wouldn't do it. I promised Jesus this is the one thing I will not do, and that's what I did. 50 days ago, when he needed me the most, the blood was pouring down his face. They were beating him and spitting on him, and he looked right at me, and I said, I don't know him. I cannot be the one. I cannot be the one to speak about the church. Anybody but me. And he turned around to walk away, and I can just envision something in Peter just rising up so strongly, and he has this thought, maybe this is why Jesus died. This is why he gave his life. For every sin I would ever commit. And he turned around and he said, okay, okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll serve God. I'll do it. I'll do it. Peter stood up. He gave the speech. And the Bible says in Acts 2.41, so many people believed him that 3,000 souls. It's actually the greatest number in the whole Bible at one time for people to get saved. And it would have never happened had Peter allowed the sin and the shame to stop him from serving God. What are you allowing in your life to stop you from soaring, from serving God? What's the one thing? What's the one thing that's been in the Old Testament ever since you repented, ever since, ever since you confessed and asked forgiveness? It's been in the Old Testament and you keep bringing it back in the New Testament. Leave it in the Old Testament where it belongs. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus is. So sin, shame, and serve. And that is repentance. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, y'all did good. Y'all did real good.